0: As was mentioned earlier, how great a blessing it is that we this evening have been given this privilege, this opportunity to assemble and to gather in the name of the God of heaven as we've done with the desire, the express purpose to exalt and magnify His will. As was mentioned earlier by Roger in the announcements, we are blessed with, of course, a good number of our membership and also visitors who've come our way we do hope that each, of course, will be in a position to be able to say how well it has been for each of us to be here this evening and to participate in this service as we have. The songs that we've just sung have prepared us so very well to give some thought to a lesson I've entitled, Facts of Life and Death. Drawn from the closing verses of Ezekiel, the 18th chapter, our lesson text tonight, we, of course, will reflect somewhat on that book of Ezekiel yet again, And in so doing, to see in particular what it was that God had to say to the ancient people of Judah on this occasion. Some opening comments. Those opening comments leading us to the appreciation. The book of Ezekiel is certainly true of these other books that you and I of recent note have, have appreciated. These prophets of the Old Testament so often have uttered and expressed matters that are so touching because many times the principles and precepts speak very directly to us even today. Paul stated to the Romans, did he not, in Romans 15, 4, that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. It is the case then that as we seek to learn the lessons found in books like that of Ezekiel, it helps us appreciate so very carefully and powerfully the fact that often the problems that they wrestled with in the ancient day very much are the same kinds of problems that we still face today. Facts of life and death. As we now cast the spotlight on the closing verses of Ezekiel 18, one of the things that I would ask that we do is reflect on much of what's found in that chapter and then look somewhat with care at the closing verses. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide. Perhaps as much so as any of the other prophets of the Old Testament era, we see in the book of Ezekiel a strong and very powerful spotlight cast on two gigantic truths. One of them is the absolute holiness of God. No matter what the circumstances of man, no matter what the predicaments in which he may find himself, that does not war against the holiness of God. God is always holy, and not only that, we also learn that Ezekiel very straightforwardly and powerfully asserted the fact that God is a God of judgment, and He is going to judge the world some grand day, but He also, of course, judged ancient Judah for her sin. As we think about those elements tonight, let's see where they lead us, and in particular as we turn the slide to this next one, let us give some thought to the following. Chapter 18 of the book of Ezekiel begins in many ways with a proverb. I would ask you to notice the proverb because, interestingly enough, we find this is a proverb that was not true. As you and I study the book of proverbs found in the Old Testament, we noted there are 31 chapters, and we find in that book proverbs that are true. Time and again, they state wisdom. They present the elements of that which is truthful, They espouse how one should live rightly and correctly. But we have here a proverb that was being spread amongst ancient Judah, and it was not true. Let me ask you to notice the statement of the proverb. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. "'The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, "'What mean ye that ye use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, "'saying, The fathers have eaten sour grapes?' and the children's teeth are set on edge. You and I, I'm sure each, have had experiences where you eat something particularly sour and you perhaps feel those muscles at the back of your jaw tighten up and it certainly affects some individuals more than others. But when that happens, often it can be a rather awkward situation depending on where you perhaps are in public at the time. Here, a particular statement that was making its circulation amongst the people of God was, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, but the kids, the children's teeth are the ones that have been set on edge. They were using that proverb as a way of describing this. Our fathers and our grandfathers and others sinned, but we're the ones being punished for it. They were under the impression, they were under the consideration that our fathers were the ones in error, our forefathers were the ones who made mistakes, and yet God is inflicting us with a punishment. The fathers are the ones that ate the sour grapes, but the children are the ones whose teeth are set on edge. You'll notice that God again began the statement, What mean ye that ye use this proverb? You and I might keep in mind that the children of Israel at this point, those to whom Ezekiel was preaching, they were already in captivity. They had been hauled off by and large in that second deportation, 597 B.C., and in the land of Babylon they now were. They often resided there in an encampment site near the river Kebar. but you'll notice they in many ways were feeling we are not the ones at fault. It was our forefathers, it was our dads, they were the ones that made the mistake. And yet God's punishing us. As they made those statements and those contemplations, again God said, What mean ye that you use this proverb? They needed to be apprised of the fact that they were the ones who also were guilty. It certainly was true that their fathers had made their mistakes, and their forefathers had made their mistakes, I would list for you in particular one of the kings of the the people of Judah. His name was Manasseh. We in times past have commented about the evilness of that wicked monarch. He was one who reigned for over five decades as king of Judah, a sinful, wicked man. And he in fact not only was that himself, he encouraged the people in that way. He encouraged them to direct their attention toward idolatry. And he did everything within his power, it seems, to make everything possible for them to accomplish it. One of the things that it seems that the people then may have thought, well, Manasseh may have done his evil, and others like him did that which was not right, but we're the ones being punished. One of the challenges and one of the charges that God had given the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel, you need to take a message. You need to bring the particulars to this people who don't think in many ways that they are guilty of anything. They need to stand before the God of heaven themselves appreciating the needfulness of repentance and appreciating that they too are in position because they have failed. I might suggest that as we develop that thought perhaps more thoroughly... One of the ways in which you and I can now appreciate and attach that to some clear thinking of today is to make the following understanding. The fathers are the ones that they have eaten sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. You'll notice on the slide, I would ask you to think about the consequences of sin and in addition to give some thought to the guilt thereof as well. I would ask you to notice the following... It certainly is true that there are occasions in which you and I are called upon in position that we may well suffer the consequences of sins that someone else has committed. That's not a pleasant thought admittedly, but that simply is the way it is. There are cases and there are times when others may make the choices that are not in keeping with God's Word. They make choices that quite frankly often redound in many ways to some serious consequences for others. Think about the people of Israel and Judah. When the fathers made choices of idolatry and when the fathers and generations previous had made their choices to step aside from the truth of God, did that have consequences for future generations? Sure it did. So to today you'll notice that thoughts like that then are very serious for our thinking. But you'll notice that there is a strong set of possibilities. I would ask you to think of some examples in the Word of God in which those thoughts come before all of us. Maybe you and I can revisit the days of Joseph. In Genesis chapters 37 and following, we have the statement, the impression of a young man who himself was directed so strongly toward that which was right He was his father's favorite, admittedly, but he nonetheless seemingly had a heart that was desirous of doing not only what was his father's will, but also more keenly attached to that which was the will of God. He ultimately was sold into slavery by his earthly brothers. And as he came ultimately into Egypt, we remember he found himself in the house of Potiphar. Potiphar's wife lied about him. She chose to accuse him of that which was not the case. Joseph was the one thrown in prison. Joseph was the one who now for a rather protracted period of time found himself in dire conditions and straits. Question, did Joseph suffer because somebody else lied? He sure did. Could it be today that there's someone perhaps at the place where you work and due to their animosity towards you could tell something about you which is not true, all motivated by desire in whatever way to bring you into lesser perhaps respect or notoriety? That could happen to any of us. May we not forget someone else's lies or someone else's sins, whatever that might be, may have consequences for us. Perhaps another example would be this one. What about the man named Daniel? We looked at him on the lesson last Sunday evening, did we not? Here was a young man, a very tender youth in many ways, taken far from his homeland. May you and I never forget that in that opening chapter of Daniel, he is described as a eunuch. It would appear he had thus undergone that procedure that would make him that way by virtue of the declaration of the king himself. Was Daniel suffering consequences due to someone else's evil behavior and the choices they had made? It thus would easily appear to be the case, wouldn't it? As a third example, what about the very Son of God himself? If there was ever an individual who had not harmed, not wronged anyone, it would be him. And yet they nailed Him to a cross. Did He suffer the consequences of the evil choices that others had made? Every one of us could shout an amen to a statement like that one. When we think about then that truth, isn't it the case? As sad as it may be that someone else might make a choice, might make a decision, might choose a pathway throughout this life, and it could have consequences for you and for me that are not so good. But let's make a strong statement at this point. It's the very last one on that slide. To say that we might suffer the consequences of someone else's sin is not by any means to say that we would suffer the guilt of their sin. The choice that that person makes, the particulars that they themselves choose to involve themselves in, that does not, even if sinful, bring the matter of guilt for those upon you and me. In fact, isn't it true, we must be emphatic in that statement. Neither you nor I will, for that reason, subject ourselves by virtue of guilt to that which is someone else's sin. Wasn't it true Jesus was asked about that? In the ninth chapter of the gospel according to John, It was true that there Jesus himself was in the vicinity, in the proximity of a man who himself was blind. His apostles asked Jesus the following question, Who sinned, this man or his parents? They were under the impression that there was a direct correlation between somebody's sin and the blindness that this man was now experiencing. And they were under the impression that thus the nature of that sin... Perhaps, well, be that of his parents, had led directly to the physical characteristics of this blind man. This would have been an almost perfect scenario for the Lord to announce that if it were possible for you and me to feel and suffer the guilt of another sin, this would have been it. And yet, Jesus very clearly answered that that was not the case. How often do you and I find in the Word of God teachings that you and I will give answer to God for our sins, our choices, and the way we have chosen to live? Jesus, among the other personalities of the New Testament, perhaps you and I could quickly rec- recollect these. We, you and I remember in Romans 14, Paul said, So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God may we notice with care that pronoun himself. It is singular. Each one of us shall give account of himself unto God. As you and I think about those statements from the Master, Revelation 22 verse number 12 again reminds us that there will be a scenic judgment in which every one of us will answer for his works. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse number 10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of God, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. All the time as we think about the singularness of those pronouns, may they help us appreciate then that the guilt that will be felt for sin, each one feels that individually. No wonder in light of those passages, the people of Ezekiel's day Needed to be very strongly reminded of some things. Maybe with that in mind, let us come to this slide. The next consideration. You'll notice in it we have the following descriptions. God made very clear to the people of Ezekiel's day the very matters that you and I have just now highlighted, but he did it in a rather dramatic fashion. I would ask that you notice some of the drama beginning in verse number 5 of Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel basically shares with the people the following scenario. He says, But if a man be just, and do that which is lawful and right, and hath not eaten upon the mountains, neither hath lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, neither hath defiled his neighbor's wife, neither hath come near to a menstruous woman, and hath not oppressed any, but hath restored to the debtor, his pledge, hath spoiled none by violence, hath given his bread to the hungry, hath covered the naked with a garment. He that hath not taken forth, given forth upon usury, neither hath taken any increase, that hath withdrawn his hand from iniquity, hath executed true judgment between man and man, hath walked in my statutes, and hath kept my judgments to deal truly, he is just." He shall surely live, saith the Lord God. Remember, the people had shared this proverb, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, the children's teeth set on edge. God, through Ezekiel, now shares with the people, here is a straightforward illustration. Here is a man, verse number 5, that's just. This man does that which is right and lawful, God, through Ezekiel, give us some details and specifics. What is it about this man's life that allows him to be described as right and just? Verse number 6, he hasn't pursued idolatry. Verse number 6, he has not engaged in adultery. He hasn't defiled his neighbor's wife. In fact, he has not even approached his own wife as a menstruous woman. Verse number 7, he has not oppressed any. Verse number 7, he has not found himself a debtor failing to pay that which is rightly due another. As verse number 7 continues onward, it says he has given bread to the hungry. He has made appropriate provision and not only appropriate provision, he has actually provided for those who are in need. Finally, you'll notice in verse number eight, He has it exacted of another, that which was not pr- a proper thing. At that point, you'll notice God says, "That man shall live." Notice it does not have any attachment to what his dad may or may not have done. His dad might have been a scoundrel. He may have been a veritable rascal. But if this man does what's right, following the dictates of that law of Moses, he shall live. At that point, you might give immediate, interesting application. Because in it, you notice verse number 9 He has walked in my statutes and he's kept my judgments. He has dealt truly, he is just and he shall live. When you and I then think about this person and the blessedness of his life, notice what it is that comes next. To say this righteous man will surely live. What a dramatic statement of his righteousness and being decreed so by God. No wonder I would ask you to notice with care some of the ways that recalls to our minds some of the former statements. The law of Moses is what it dictated. Don't commit adultery. The law of Moses is what it dictated about again not going near a woman who is in a a period of uncleanness. It was the law of Moses who asserted the needfulness of that day and time of taking bread to the hungry and helping those in need. You'll notice God says He's kept my statutes and my judgments. As you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, what a description in many ways that brings to our mind about the what the Lord affirmed in Matthew 25. When we hear the day of judgment, Jesus spoke about those who in fact had visited those that were needy, taking care of the sick, making proper application for those in prison, those that are hungry or otherwise. Here even in Ezekiel's day, the man judged righteous had taken care of of the things that God had asserted. No wonder though with that, the lesson that easily is to be seen is found as we proceed to what God through Ezekiel mentions next. Notice, in these verses, description of a righteous man was presented. What is it that comes in verse 10? If he beget a son. So now we're going to discuss the son of this righteous man. Suppose there is a righteous man, but his son is not. Notice the wording with me. If he beget a son that is a robber. A shedder of blood, he that doeth the like to any of these things, and that doeth not any of those duties, but even hath eaten upon the mountains, and defiled his neighbor's wife, hath oppressed the poor, and needy, and spoiled by violence, hath not restored the pledge, and hath lifted up his eyes to idols. Verse 13, Hath given forth upon usury, and hath taken increase, shall he then live? Here's a direct question this righteous man that you and I described a moment ago, one who had given his life to dedicated, faithful obedience to that which was the will of God in that law of Moses area. God says, suppose that righteous man has a son that's not righteous. He's a thief. He's a robber. He's an adulterer. He's an idolater. He has, in fact, taken advantage of those about him. He has not taken care of the needy. Question, shall that son live? Let's let God answer. Verse 13, He shall not live. He hath done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. That proverb that they had heard, the fathers are the ones that ate the sour grapes, the children are the ones whose teeth are set on edge. God here gives an illustration. This righteous man, due to his righteousness and his dedication, shall live But the son, due to his unfaithfulness and his sinfulness, he shall not. The illustration isn't finished yet. Notice what happens in verse 14. You'll notice now it says, Now, lo, if he beget a son, now who is it we're discussing? We're now discussing the son of the wicked man, the grandson of the faithful man, the grandson of the one we discussed at first, It says, Lo, if he beget a son that seeth all his father's sins which he hath done and considereth, and doeth not such like, that hath not eaten upon the mountains, neither lifted up his eyes to the idols, neither hath oppressed any. Verse 16, as that saga continues, the wording is very much near to that which we saw at first. We now are seeing three generations One that was righteous, but a son that wasn't, but now a grandson that is faithful and righteous again. As the following scenario ends, let's let God state something else. Verse number 17, That hath taken off his hand from the poor, and that hath not received usury nor increase, hath executed my judgments, hath walked in my statutes, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. We have a clear teaching relative to the individual nature of our standing before God, do we not? That son was going to not live due to his own sins. The faithfulness of the father couldn't save him. Might we also notice the grandson, he would live, but it would not be due to the faithfulness of granddad. You and I today, it seems still, Find many who will say, speaking of their dear departed parents or grandparents, and there's no question the degree of concern and love they have for them, but granddad's faithfulness won't save you and me. What grandma may or may not have done will not lead to you and I standing rightly or improperly before God. When we stand before the God of heaven, we shall stand there based on what we chose to do and what we did or did not do. God taught that clearly in the days of Ezekiel, didn't He? You'll notice verse number 18 says, As for His Father, because He cruelly oppressed, spoiled His brother by violence, and did that which is not good among His people, lo, even He shall die in His iniquity. The individual nature of your and my response to the God of heaven. How noteworthy and how powerful. As you come to the bottom of that slide with me, much of this chapter proceeds to develop this point very powerfully. I suspect the most well-known verse of this whole chapter is verse number 20. Let us look at it as I read it in our hearing tonight. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. How comforting in many ways it is to hear that although we may feel consequences from the choices that others might make, we will not answer for the guilt of any such sins. We will only answer for our own sins in terms of that which is its guilt. No wonder in light of those appreciations, the last section of this chapter I would ask that you notice the warning given to those of that day and that warning and how so strongly you and I can heed and hear the same thing today. Verse number 21, "'But if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he hath committed and keep all my statutes and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die, all his transgressions that he hath committed. They shall not be mentioned unto him.'" In his righteousness that he hath done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord, and that he, should not, or that he should return from his ways and live? The refrain found in those verses, how sweet and how powerful it is. You'll notice, those that are righteous, when they have received forgiveness from those transgressions, God says they will not be remembered I'm sure that I stand before many this evening, and many of us can think of how grand a thought that is. I'm so thankful that God has forgiven me of things that were done in the distant past because I've approached Him through the blessedness of the blood of His Son. And I know you feel exactly the same. You and I can, in fact, recognize how great it is to live and the statement found in the Word of God toward that end. However, as God goes on to say, look at verse 24. But when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness, and committeth iniquity, and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned. In his trespass that he hath trespassed, and in his sin that he hath sinned, in them shall he die. As often as you and I may have heard someone say that once a person is saved, he can never, ever be found in a position of being lost. That flies in the face of untold numbers of scriptures, and one of them is the very one before us tonight. When the righteous man turns from his righteousness and begins to do that which is unlawful, unjust, and evil, God says, I won't remember his righteousnesses. He'll die in his iniquity. And he'll, of course, have to answer for that fact. Talk about a fact of life and death. You and I can see in verses like these how strong was the message of God toward that ancient people of Judah. They were under the impression they were suffering due to the evil choices of somebody else, but they had made evil choices too. And they needed to face up to that reality. No wonder in verses 22 to 24... We notice when the righteous man dies how sweet it is that all the past sins were forgiven. But when that righteous man turns from his righteousness and dies as a a sinner, dies as an evil man, God says He'll have to answer, of course, for those choices, the sins that He's in and committed unforgiven. As you proceed to the last element in the chapter, verses 25 to 32 Set before us one final saga, one final consideration relative to some of these matters. Yet you say, verse 25, the way of the Lord is not equal. One more time, the people of Israel were making some statements that were not true. We learned earlier about the proverb. About again, the sour grapes that the fathers had eaten, but the children's teeth set on edge. Here was something else shared amongst the people in captivity, but it wasn't a true statement. The way of the Lord is not equal. You can perhaps hear, and many today still are under the impression, they want everything to be fair as they perceive it. They want fairness to be judged by their standard. Here was the people of Judah. They'd been hauled off into captivity. Now there were still some people living in the Jerusalem area. The Babylonians didn't take them off. And here were people saying, God, is it fair? We've been taken to captivity, but people are still in Jerusalem. Not only that, God, is it fair? We're paying for sins that somebody else committed. Why ain't God punishing them? The house of the Lord is not equal. The way of God is not equal. It's a serious thing to accuse God of being not fair. Genesis 18.25 still says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Notice how verse number 25 goes on to say, O house of Israel, is not my way equal, are not your ways unequal? God said, my way is equal. It's you folks in captivity that are not equal. Your claims are absolutely false. What a serious admonition and a serious warning. Verse number 26 and following identifies in some continual ways the following thoughts. When a righteous man turneth away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity and dieth in them for his iniquity that he hath done shall he die. Again, when the wicked man turneth away from his wickedness, that he hath committed and doeth that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive. Today, you and I herald far and wide the precious gospel. And any individual, it matters not how long that person has lived in sin. might be an 85-year-old man, but if he obeys the gospel we have every assurance and every promise in Scripture that God will look with favor upon the blessedness and the faithful obedience of that man. But by the same token, if an 18-year-old obeys the gospel and then chooses thereafter to live unfaithfully and chooses to live in iniquity and chooses to disobey that which is the gospel message and its demands... You and I can then look, of course, with sadness upon the choice that individual makes. No wonder, in light of those thoughts, here's the final warning. Verses 31 and 32. Cast away from you all your transgressions whereby ye have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will ye die, O house of Israel? To my mind, that has to be one of the grandest questions of the Old Testament. Why will you die? God doesn't want anybody to die in sin. He doesn't want individuals to die lost. He doesn't want individuals to die separate and apart from the saving grace that He offers. And yet untold numbers choose to do that very thing. Why will you die, O Israel? In captivity, they were giving the message from Ezekiel and others to repent. Notice how strong that word at least indirectly appears in verse 31. Cast away from you all your transgressions. Don't continue to live in the ways that you have. Cast all that way of life aside. Find in you a new heart and a new spirit. As you develop some of those thoughts with me, no wonder that this slide highlights some of those very thoughts like this. Isn't it amazing how similar we find in the message of the gospel, some of these same things? You and I are taught to be the new man of Ephesians 4, verses 22 and following. A person not choosing to live after the manner of the world, if you please. That manner separate and apart from the truth of God. were admonished as those of a spirit and countenance of the Lord to live after the way of that new man, forgiven and cleansed and sanctified. No wonder in light of those things, the closing thoughts. Help us see one last time, verse number 32. All of us have been given the warning. The righteous man, if he chooses to turn aside from it and he dies in that sin, his righteousness will not be remembered. Verse 32, For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and leave. God does not take any pleasure in the death of a wicked person. It breaks his heart when that person who had the opportunity through the blood of Christ to be saved, who had the opportunity through the agency of the forgiveness and redemption offered through Jesus to be found whole, sanctified, and right, and they die lost. God doesn't smile at that. He doesn't find pleasure in it. In fact, it's a sorrowful thing. He will say more than once in this book of Ezekiel, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. May you and I in wisdom then not die as a wicked person. May we live faithfully, justly, and rightly so that when our sojourn upon this life has reached its conclusion, that our righteousness will be what's seen and not any iniquity. We have every assurance that the blood of Christ can cleanse any and every sin to which we apply it. To which God applies it. This very evening, as we close this 18th chapter of Ezekiel, and of course it'll prepare us for much of the rest of this book, admittedly, we shall find one nation after another standing before the judgment bar of God and they're giving an answer for their iniquities and their unrighteousnesses. On a personal level tonight, every one of us can ask the same thing Where do I stand and what about you? Does God look with favor upon you this very night? When He looks your direction and when He looks mine, does He see the blood of His Son? For if He does, all is well with your soul and mine. He sees that which is faithful and just and that which is a powerful example of truth and goodness. But if He looks your way and mine and He does not see that blood, that means He sees my faults or yours. He sees those things that stand between you or me and Him. This same book of Ezekiel, Many times, urges repentance. And tonight, that still is a necessary thing if there is sin in your life. If you need to repent this evening, that surely must follow belief, a confidence on your part that Jesus is the Son of God, and a willingness to do something about it. If tonight you need to repent of sins and come to Him, don't delay. There may not be a tomorrow. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth, to borrow the words of Proverbs 27.1. This evening, as we come to the closing thought, how amazing it is to reflect on how thrilling and scintillating Ezekiel as a book is. But in it tonight, we've seen several things, not the least of which is the Proverbs that ancient Israel heard many times weren't true. You and I have the truth of God before us. Let's follow it. Believe it thoroughly and obey it completely. The plan of salvation demands that you and I, of course, believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of our sins, confess His name as the only begotten Son of God and be baptized. If you haven't taken care of that, you need to do it tonight. If you have become a Christian at some former day, but your life has fallen far from the nature that it ought to have had, Much like these people in captivity, maybe you have again become enslaved to sin. Why not come back to your first love? Approach the God of heaven as He's commanded. He's promised to forgive and put you back to a right position of faithfulness. If this evening we could be of help to you, we would ask you to let us know that and we'd be honored to assist you, whatever that needed your life may be. Jeff has chosen this song of encouragement and if you need to come, do it now. While together we stand and while we sing.